Good evening. Happy Friday. Glad that you guys are here tonight. Just want to start with a word of prayer and ask God to bless us in a very special way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just thank you that you've given us a wonderful week, Lord. And as we come to this time of rest, we just pray and ask that our hearts would be open to receive that which you have for us. God, we thank you that you care about our lives and that our circumstances are not hidden from you. Lord, we pray that the great comfort of the Holy Spirit would be here in a mighty way to impress us, to encourage us, and to strengthen us again for life. And Lord, we just pray and ask that you would also give us a glimpse of the future too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Wonderful. Glad that you guys are here. As I said earlier, I know that God is going to bless us in a very special way. Well, tonight's message is extremely important. It's called From Tragedy to Triumph. In our world today, there is so much tragedy, there is so much triumph, or excuse me, not triumph, there's so much heartache, so much pain, and a lot of people are asking the question, wait a minute, God, if you're so good, how is the world so bad? And so as a pastor, I get that question all the time, all the time. Whenever I'm sharing or giving talks, people always ask this question, God is so good, but how is it that the world is so bad? There seems to be some kind of contradiction here, some kind of tension here, and that we need to understand what this tension is all about. I'll tell you a true story. There was a man, he was actually put in the internment camps when he was a young boy the Jewish internment camps. His name was Eli Wiesel, or as it says, sometimes the Americans say, Eli Wiesel. And this individual was somebody who went into the internment camps when he was a young boy. He lost his father and his sister, and eventually his mom died later on. He was somebody that actually was able to leave the uh, Jewish intern camps, and he went on to, you know, get educated and to share his story with millions of people. In fact, there's a lot of pictures of him with a lot of politicians and world leaders where he is sharing and talking about human humanitarian causes. He wrote this book, and this book was called God on Trial. This individual is actually an agnostic. He goes back and forth about God. But he wrote this book called God on Trial, and it was based on this supposed account that took place when he was actually in that camp. He says, as a young boy, one day when he was just on these laying on these barracks, he noticed that there was a group of Jewish rabbis who were actually prisoners as well. And he was just laying on his bed and he was watching them when all of a sudden, all five of them get up in the middle of this little, uh, the floor between the barracks. And they get there, they pull out a little desk and they begin to call a court in session. And he's watching the whole thing as he's laying down. And then the rabbi that was pretending to be the judge says, the court is in session, we are about to call God on trial for the horrendous crimes against his people. And as he watched the whole thing, they came to the end of the conclusion and they announced God guilty of all crimes. Very remarkable story, a very unusual one 
and one that a lot of atheists and skeptics and doubters and people not just with outside the church but within the church are questioning about who God really is in a world that is full of so much turmoil and problems and tragedy. In fact, I was reading the story about somebody who in 2006 had a terrible, terrible tragedy. It was one right on top of the other. There's a group of college students, five of them that were driving. All of a sudden there was a flat tire. The van swerved off, killed everybody except for one young lady. Her name was Laura. She was identified, she was still breathing. They took her to that bed, to the hospital, and her parents for five weeks stayed by her side. When they began to notice something unusual as they were by her side, they began to realize something very strange. And as they were just seeing her heal more and more, and they begin to see the bandages come off, they begin to realize that wasn't their daughter. True story. Parents that had celebrated, or had, uh, not celebrated, but that had um, done their, their daughter's funeral just found out that their daughter was actually alive. And this, this, these parents over here, here they were, they were celebrating the life of their daughter, thinking that she was alive, only to discover she has been dead for five weeks. And we look at stories like that and they're so tragic. More and more we're reading the news and we're seeing more tragedy, more pain, more heartache. And a lot of people are asking the question, where is God in the midst of all of this? What we're going to be doing today is we're going to be taking a very interesting look in the book of Job. The reason why the book of Job is so beautiful, ladies and gentlemen, is because this book has application for our time. This book, whether you're an atheist or whether you're agnostic, philosopher, or whoever you are, whatever background you come from, the book of Job has entered into many different categories of study. People quote from it because what they find in this book is human tragedy in its rawest form. Also, that is something that is very interesting. The Bible is full of a lot of questions. But the book of Job actually has more questions in it than any other book of the Bible. The reason why is because in suffering, there are so many questions. Something that is also interesting about the book of Job, it is technically the first book of the Bible. The reason why is because Moses actually penned this book while he was in the desert and then chronologically or sequentially he began to pen the other books. So when you're looking at the book of Job, you are technically looking at the first written book of the Bible. Sequentially, you see Genesis obviously being the first book of the Bible because it's dealing with creation. But what was actually written regarding as far as biblical text, the book of Job was first and primary. And as we take a good look at the book of Job, we're going to be discovering some very interesting things. Now, when you think of the Bible, the Old Testament, and you think about the lives that are most envious, you think about various biblical patriarchs, different characters in Scripture, people who are blessed by God, I'm about to make the argument to you that one of the most envious life of all of Scripture is Job. Amen? You really believe that? Wow, you are risky and bold. I'm going to make the argument that the book of Job, that Job is actually one of the best lives in Scripture. I'm also going to make the argument that Job is one of the worst life in all of Scripture. 
And that's very intentional, that contrast, and you're going to see that played out in Scripture. Take a look at Job right here. Job chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was what? Job, and that man, now notice this, was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. The very first thing we are introduced about Job was that he was a good man. There was nothing evil about this individual. Spiritually, he had an awesome connection with God. Now take a good look at his family. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also his possessions were, now notice the numbers, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Take a good look at Job's life, ladies and gentlemen. You see a man who was spiritually right. He actually had a wonderful big family, and he was very wealthy. Now, it's one thing to be wealthy and not spiritual. It's another thing to be spiritual and not wealthy, but it's another thing to be spiritual and wealthy, right? <laughs> and so Job had all of that. He had, he, was a, he had a very powerful spiritual connection with God. He had a wonderful family. And by the way, you're going to be introduced a little bit more details about his family just to let you know the kind of people they are. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day, and would send and invite their three sisters, now notice this, to eat and drink with them. And that's very intentional. Notice how these brothers actually take care of their sisters. Perhaps they were unwanted by other men. Whatever the cause, they are spending time together. I mean, if you think about it, if Job drove a minivan, he would have those little family stickers. Job, his wife, seven sons, three daughters, a dog, and a parakeet in the back of his van. Job was somebody who took care of his family. In fact, look what the Bible says next. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them, and he would rise up early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them. Now notice what this. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their what? Hearts. Job was even concerned about the thoughts of his children. This just tells you the kind of stock Job's children were part of. Job had raised his family right. He had an awesome connection with God, awesome family, awesome wealth. It even says that Job was the greatest man of the East. When you're looking at one of the most envious lives of all of Scripture, it is the first few verses of the book of Job. And somehow... He then becomes the worst life of all scripture. But what is so remarkable is that when you are looking at technically the first book of the Bible, you are introduced to four thematic elements. Take a good look at these elements. And this just lets us know how relevant the book of Job is for our time. Number one, there is a great controversy. That's found in the first chapter. Number two, good people suffer. Number three, human answers are insufficient. Number four, God can bring a greater good out. Can you say amen to that? And so when you're thinking about a book that is relevant for our time, and you're thinking about a book that is applicable for the people that are living in this tragic state or condition of the world, the book of Job actually has remarkable application. In fact, what is also interesting, the book of Job actually borrows or uses a lot of language that is found in the, during the time in Revelation when the seven plagues are falling upon the world. It's very interesting, and you see the response of these people to those plagues, and you see the response of Job to the plagues that were upon him, which is a stark contrast. And so when you're looking at Job, you're seeing a very remarkable book. 
a book that has a great controversy, a book that shows that good people suffer, a book that shows human answers and human attempts to answer those questions are, are many times just a big failure. And the fourth thing is God can bring a greater good out. You read the book of Job, you find out about this man. All of a sudden, he gets some news one day. The news is his business, his livestock has just been raided by the local pagans. So he loses all of that. And as he's just gasping for air, all of a sudden somebody else comes to him. And by the way, they said, you didn't just lose your livestock, but you just lost your servants as well. And as he's hearing that, all of a sudden, still trying to gasp for air, somebody comes running to him and says, your children are now dead. One right after the other. And if it couldn't get any worse, he gets afflicted by plagues, by boils. His own health is deteriorating. Now I think another thing Satan did was send some terrible friends right after that. One right after the other. When you look at Job's life, ladies and gentlemen, you see somebody who was suffering, someone who was in pain, and it was like tragedy after tragedy after tragedy after tragedy kept falling upon this man right here. We're living in a world today where tragedy is happening on an intense scale. Oftentimes I'm hearing stories about people who were abused by their own relatives. I'm hearing stories of mothers now killing their children. School shootings are happening left and right and this world has become so and so scary, ladies and gentlemen. And sooner or later, it will affect us if it hasn't. It's just the way this world is. And as we take a good look at the book of Job, we're going to be discovering some very special things about this story. The second thing I want to introduce you to is this idea. There is a great controversy, but the second thing is what we talked about earlier, and that is human answers are insufficient to solve life's problems. In fact, oftentimes when you read the book of Job, the majority of the book of Job is his friends attempting to give him a reason for suffering. And the more you read it, the more obscure the problem and cause becomes. Even when God is speaking to Job, he doesn't even bring up the big meta-narrative picture. Because human answers in the immediacy of suffering are insufficient. Oftentimes we'll look for propositional truths and phrases trying to comfort ourselves. But when we are going through pain and when sorrow and tragedy is happening upon us at that very moment, nothing will satisfy you. The mind is stormy and unreasonable. And as these friends sit down with Job, they begin to explain what was the cause and what was the problem. In fact, one day, it was so funny, I actually discovered that I'm allergic to ibuprofen. I don't know why anybody's laughing at that. But here's the thing. I was doing some ministry, and I was staying at a student dorm with some of my friends. I took some ibuprofen, and I never before had an allergic reaction. And all of a sudden, as I'm laying on bed, I had this headache, and so I was laying on bed, took the ibuprofen, and I just began to feel scratchy all over my body. I got up and I was like, I need to check myself in the mirror. And as I was just opening my eyes, all of a sudden I saw right in the mirror, hives had broken out all over my face. It distorted me. I didn't even shave and so it just added to the ugliness that I was looking at. 
I immediately raced out of the room, and this has never happened to me before. And I said to my friend, I said, look what's happened to me. And he was on the computer and he said, oh my goodness. <laughs> and I sat on that bed and I was thinking to myself, I've never had an allergic reaction before. What do I do? And my friend says, I don't know what to do. I'll call up one of our other friends. He went in there too. And he came in, he was startled by what he saw. And all they did was ask me questions about what might have caused this problem. And one of them said, we're like Job's friends, useless. And I just looked at them and I'm thinking to myself, what are you even doing here right now? You're making it worse. But can you imagine someone like Job? Here he is, his body is deteriorating, his family is gone, his children who he loved perished, his business gone. Even his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? The most intimate relationships in Job's life were completely destroyed or fractured. Everything that could go wrong in life, ladies and gentlemen, went wrong in the life of Job. It was very interesting. When you read the middle part of Job, Job says this, oh, that there was a book written about me. Imagine when Job gets to heaven one day. He gets there, and God says, hey, there's a special book. Job says, the book of Job. He had no clue that God was recording his life and would produce it later on in the life of Moses. And that book, ladies and gentlemen, has provided more comfort and solace to millions and millions of people when they are suffering. So here we are, we are looking at this, this kind of suffering that is taking place. Did you know Jesus actually talked about suffering? He talked about evil in the world. He gave two examples of this. In the Gospel of Luke, he says this. He tells his disciples one day, he says, hey, there was a man by the name of Pilate. And Pilate decided to slay several of the Jews. He mingled their blood with the sacrifice. And then Jesus says something very interesting. He introduces another terrible situation, and then he says, what about those Jews that were in that tower, and all of a sudden that tower fell down? Jesus here hones in on two kinds of evil that we can see. The first kind of evil was a moral kind of evil. Pilate himself was committing moral atrocities. But the second kind of evil was something that happened very, in a, very much in a random sense. It is what you might call a natural kind of evil. No one planned for the tower to fall, it just fell down. And in our world today, you have these two kinds of evil present. You have a moral kind of evil where people are making choices that are destroying other people's lives, and then you have a natural kind of evil that is occurring randomly and seemingly without cause. And that is very present in our society today. Tragedy is striking left and right. And what is Doing the most amount of damage is not understanding many times what is going on. And without that understanding, many people begin to walk away from the very source of the one who can actually provide them life and healing. Ladies and gentlemen, we're about to take a very interesting 
twist in this story. Take your Bible, go to the book of Matthew. Jesus, one one day, is describing a very interesting situation. He's describing a situation where he is talking about some very problematic things. This is a very powerful parable here. I've been studying it out more and more, and I've been blown away. You're going to be blown away by what you hear. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 24. If you're there, go ahead and say amen. Notice this. And by the way, this was the only parable that the disciples, after they heard, wanted to get more information about, except for the parable of the sower. Take a look at verse 24. Another parable he put forth to them. Now watch this. The kingdom of heaven is like a what? A man who sowed what? Good seed in his field. While men slept, now notice this, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. Look at verse 27. But the servants of the owner came and said to him, now watch this, do not go any further. Notice this part right here. Jesus gives this parable. In this parable, it starts off with a good farmer. He's sowing good seeds. And in the middle of the night, a sneaky enemy comes. He begins to sow tares. They begin to grow up with the wheat. And then the servants are just thinking to themselves, wait a minute, how did this occur? But pay attention to the question they ask. So the servants said to the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seeds in your field? Now watch the second question. How then does it have what? Now we're going to reword their question that they asked. They said, Did you not sow good seeds? In other words, aren't you a good farmer? Now watch the second watch the second question. How then is there tears? Or in other words, how is there evil? In other words, the question was, you're supposed to be good. How then is there evil? They were asking the question that the people of today are asking. God, if you're so good, how is the world so evil? And I love how Jesus just pinpoints the problem and look what he says right here. He said to them, an enemy has done this. Jesus pinpoints the problem and he says, you want to know who is the cause of this evil? An enemy. And by the way, the first time the word Satan appears, it's in the book of Job, which means adversary. And so in this particular story, Jesus introduces there is a living antagonist that wants to destroy and cause problems. But he doesn't just want to cause problems for the farmer. What he is trying to do, he is trying to invoke a kind of controversy with those who are nearby. They begin to question the character of the farmer because of what was happening in the field. That's the same kinds of questions that we have today when tragedy takes place. We begin to question the heavenly farmer. And this is exactly what Jesus was trying to pinpoint. He was describing a problem, and this is the problem. It is the problem of the great controversy. Here, Jesus is introducing the primary cause of that great controversy, and it is none other than Satan himself. Look what Job chapter 1, verse 6 says in the next part. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Notice the meaning and the specific kind of meaning it is. Apparently, it's a public kind of meeting, and that is very intentional. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and what? 
forth on it. Do you know what kind of language Satan is using here? He is actually using Abrahamic language. God one day told Abraham, walk that way down and walk this way down and walk that way down and every place your footsteps, that is your territory. And when God turns to Satan and he says, where are you coming from? He responds, all over planet Earth. And what he was saying by going up and down it and left and right, what he was actually saying was, I own this planet. You ever hear intelligent people talk? Anybody? <laughs> now there's intelligent people who will talk for a long time. But the really intelligent people, when they have a conversation, there's a principle in their kind of talking, most of the time. It's something called, you ready for this? Brevity. Can you say that word with me? Brevity. Do you know what brevity is? It's when there is a lot of implications in the thoughts where you do not need a lot of takeoff to fly the plane and you can just simply, succinctly state things. Don't you wish a lot of people were like that? Amen. Amen, especially for pastors, right? In this particular situation, notice God and Satan begin to get into this conversation. Highly intelligent minds, and you see a lot of implications in their phraseology. Look at this. Then the Lord said to him, now notice this, have you considered my servant Job? It was a direct answer to the implications that Satan was saying. Satan was saying, I own this planet, there is nobody who serves you, and God was responding, you're wrong. There is one whose name is Job. Now notice this. There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. Now what is Satan's reply? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Immediately he begins to give this torrent of words because he has been annoyed and frustrated by Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Look what else he says next. Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? Sounds like somebody was stalking his Facebook, wasn't he? <laughs> you better believe it. He was utterly annoyed by Job. He was well aware of his property, his family, the dynamics of his life. And he begins to give this angry turn of words about Job. Look what he says next. You have blessed the work of his hands, the possessions have increased in the land. Now watch this next phrase right here. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Here Satan presents a kind of challenge, but he was not challenging Job. He was challenging something else. He was making this challenge in front of a lot of other beings. And what the devil was actually challenging God on was the principles of his kingdom. In other words, the way God runs his government. He was questioning the motivation for why people keep the law of God. And this was part of his original deception. Back then, what even says this, that Satan's greatest accusation, his deception, he does not believe love exists. He denies its very existence. 
And here he is questioning Job in front of all these other beings in front of God because he is trying to insinuate things. The only reason why people follow you, God, is because if they don't, they will fear you and lose everything. He was questioning the motivation of obedience. He was attacking God's government. And now here Job was in the middle of this great controversy. And little did Job know he would be the one that would vindicate God in front of all these beings. This was something Job still to this day does not understand. Sleeping in his grave. Even when God speaks to him, God doesn't bring out the bigger picture. He doesn't even bring out Lucifer. Or what took place. But one day when Job gets to heaven, he's going to recognize and realize that it was because of his faithfulness during times of suffering that there are countless beings that are saved because of him. Ladies and gentlemen, oftentimes in suffering and pain and tragedy, we can't see the bigger picture. We may grapple with why things are happening. But God wants us to trust in him. I never forgot one day I was actually walking with my friend and we we're going to the grocery store. I have a good friend. He's like mission guy number one. I mean, anytime we go somewhere, Taco Bell, you name it, it turns into a mission trip. He's <laughs> passing out literature everywhere. Go to the subway. We're there two hours because he's witnessing to some Jehovah Witness. One day as we're walking to the grocery store, we're walking there, and there's this man who's sitting in his car. My friend takes out some glow literature, begins to pass it out to different people. He passes it out to him, runs back to where I am, and all of a sudden the guy says, hey, I want to talk to you too. This is exactly how the story happened. We walked over there, and he says this. You guys are Christian, right? I said, yes. He said, I used to be a Christian. He says... I'm an engineer, which is not mutually exclusive from being a Christian, amen? But that's what he stated. He said, I'm an engineer. He says, I think very logically, very intelligently. He says, I want to ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, my little niece, eight years old, she got cancer. And as he began to say, his lips began to quiver. His eyes began to water. And he said, she began to pray to Jesus that he would deliver her from this suffering. And she died. And then he turned to us with just these angry words, and he says, you tell me why God would do this to a young girl who was praying to him. And my friend looks at me, this is what he does. He said, I'm gonna let Anel answer this question. <laughs> That's exactly what he does. And you know what I do? I'm, I try to be just as smart, and I go, huh. You know what I said? You better take this one right here. Then my friend, this is what he does. And I believe he's spirit-led at the moment. He says, you know, I think you should do this one now. And the man's just like back and forth. And at the moment, I sent up a prayer to God, and I said, look, here's the thing to understand, man. I said, I don't know why. And I said, even Jesus, when he was suffering on the cross, he asked the question, why? I said, right now on this side of heaven, we may not understand the intricacies and the dynamics of the big picture, 
But I said, when we get there to that special time during those thousand years, I said, God's going to make things very crystal clear, not always this explanation for suffering, but how he brought good out of the suffering. And then I turned to him and I said, but you want to know what would be a tragedy? Your little niece to be there and you are not. That moment, he just began to cry. And I said, God wants you to be one day reunited with this Christian niece of yours. And you know what he said to us at the end of it? He said, I know God sent you guys to me. Ladies and gentlemen, we may not have all the questions, but even Job teaches us that in suffering, always propositional truths may not be necessary to satisfy people, but simply what Job needed during his time of suffering was not an answer, but an audience with God. You hear what I just said? Sometimes the way you deal with suffering is not just with answers, but with an audience. What Job received and what he needed the most during his suffering at the end of it was an audience with God. And God himself came to Job personally. And he begins to ask him a series of questions, ultimately trying to help Job understand in these questions that are based on nature. Job, if you can't understand right now things of nature, how will you understand things of the universe? And Job was satisfied by this connection and this communion. It was a blessing to Job. And it's very remarkable. It is during this time, during this suffering, that Job begins to find healing and peace because of that audience with God. It is during suffering we can have the greatest kinds of revelation and the greatest kinds of witnessing. It is so difficult because nobody wants it that way, ladies and gentlemen. I never forgot one day, one of my good friends, he was taking me to um, one of his church members' house. He was a pastor. And he says, hey, we're spending some time together. I got to run and do this visitation. There's an anointing taking place. So I said, okay, I'll go with you. We went there came in this room and as we stood in this room we were the first ones there and right there in the middle of the living room there was this hospital bed and a man who was lying on there old and frail his eyes closed the oxygen machines the hospital other machines were there making all sorts of noises and beeps and i'm just like okay we're about to do an anointing we're there it's quiet some elders begin to show up and all of a sudden, the last guy to show up was a young doctor, well-dressed, professional. He comes in, one of the elders, the last one. My friend says, we're about to start the anointing. Gathered around the bed of this old man, and I saw the most remarkable thing take place. All of a sudden, this old man lifted himself up. And he began to talk about faith and prayer. What I discovered during that time was the anointing was not for him, but it was for the young doctor. This old man that was the, the last few moments of his life had this faith that this young doctor who was dealing with some type of problem the anointing was for him. 
And he brought the young doctor and he lifted his old frail hands with a lot of pain and he began to pray over the doctor. We all laid hands upon this young doctor. We were praying in a, in a real world sense. If we looked at that situation, we would say, it is the, the young man who is alive and the old man who is dying. But the way heaven was looking upon that stage, that scene, it was the old man who was alive and the young man who was dead. We all left, every one of us anointed by the Spirit of God. Walked away, I was just shell-shocked. I didn't know what to say. I've never been to anointing for a doctor who seemed to be in good health from an old man who seemed not to be in good health. And it began to teach me a powerful lesson about suffering. That it is during these dark times that God can oftentimes accomplish the most amount of good. I've had a lot of run-ins recently with some people who have been abused. Oftentimes finding out they were molested by a relative when they were younger. And they say to you, why did God allow this to happen? And you sit there and you're just like, I don't know. I never forgot when I was reading this story one day about this book, it's called The Kite Runner. You ever read that book before? I don't always recommend that book. It's a very interesting book. It's a book that has a very unusual ending to it. It's a story about this man who grew up in Afghanistan with his good friend, who happened to be the servant's son. They grow up, they go through a lot of experiences in Afghanistan, and eventually the young man leaves Afghanistan, goes to America, and there he grows up, gets married, becomes an author, makes money. He gets a call one day that his friend, who was the servant's son, actually passed away. He also discovered that his friend was actually his half-brother. Didn't know that growing up. And as he is making his decision, thinking to himself, should I go to Afghanistan and try to deal with the funeral? But also he discovered that his friend actually had a boy. And he was thinking to himself, maybe I'll go there and adopt him, bring him back. So he begins this long journey to Afghanistan. He gets there. And as he's there, he finds out the boy has been kidnapped by Taliban warlords sold, excuse me, into the Taliban. And through a series of adventures, he finds out about where this boy is, and he goes to this place where the Taliban leaders were. And he discovers they were molesting the boy. Scuffle takes place. He flees with the boy. They get out of Afghanistan. They get to the safe place. They're staying in this hotel room, and he goes to sleep. In the middle of the night, he wakes up and discovers the little boy has taken off. And he begins this frantic search throughout town, thinking that maybe the Taliban had followed him, kidnapped the boy, and brought him back. And all he can see in the boy is his friend. So he begins this frantic search and eventually finds him on this hill that was overlooking this mosque. And he goes up right next to this boy. And he sits right next to him. Doesn't say too much. The boy is contemplating things, pondering things. And he's just there when all of a sudden the boy begins to say something to him. He says, I feel dirty. 
And as I was reading that, I wondered to myself, a lot of people who have been abused in life, do they carry with them this kind of feelings? Of feeling used, scarred, and hurt? But I was blown away by what took place because as in the character of the story he was listening to the boy, he then begins to tell him about his father. And he begins to share the adventures he had with his father. And the boy, began to, his eyes begin to open up and he begins to listen. As this man begins to share thoughts and memories of his father, his friend, his half-brother, and he begins to share the kind of man he was. And the boy began to find dignity. And what he tells the boy at the end, he says to him, you're not dirty. You're not unclean. Ladies and gentlemen, during times of tragedy, we may not be able to understand something, but what we need to focus in on, we need to focus in on the goodness of God during those times. Can you say amen to that? And how God will bring out a greater good in spite of what happened. Not because of what happened, but in spite of it, God will do a greater good. And I'm winding down with this powerful thought I want to share with you. If you take a good look and you go to the very end of the book of Job, it is remarkable what takes place at the end of Job. Go to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42 is very interesting. Job chapter 42. Verse 12, watch what the scripture says right here. It's very powerful. Now the Lord blessed the what? Latter days of Job. Now notice this, more than the beginning. Okay? For he had what? 14,000 what? By the way, how many sheep did he have in the beginning? 7,000. Look what he says next. 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. How many camels did he have in the beginning? How many? 3,000. It's now doubled at the end of his life. Notice what he says next. 1,000 yoke of oxen. How many yoke of oxen did he have prior? 500. You're seeing the pattern. 1,000 female donkeys. How many donkeys did he have prior? Female donkeys. 500. Now watch this. He also had seven sons and three daughters. What was not doubled, ladies and gentlemen? His children. But we're wrong about a certain point. The pattern of Scripture is leading us to believe that the family he lost will be in heaven one day. Can you say amen if you got it? Amen. That he did not lose his children. The pattern of Scripture was leading to believe that you'll be doubly blessed, doubly blessed, doubly blessed. And then he gets this one set of children and he's just like... And this was God's confirmation to him. Those children you have lost in tragedy are eternally preserved in my mind. And at that great resurrection day, I will raise them along with these children and you will have two pairs or two families, Brady Bunch of children right here. <laughs> what is also remarkable, there's another tidbit that's added there. It says, Job's daughters were the most, what? Beautiful in all the land. Prior to that, what was the situation of the daughters? Nobody wanted to take care of them. They had to go to their brother's house for food. 
The implication is there and that these, oh yes, that's exactly right. These daughters did not have this kind of attraction, but don't, don't, don't miss this point. And what God was trying to imply at the very end in the last chapter of Job was his children, his daughters, were more attractive than anybody else. Anything that Job lost in suffering was repaid in a greater sense from God. Can you say amen to that? That phrase, he blessed the latter days than the earlier days, is throughout scripture over and over again in different parables, in different stories, because God is trying to teach a very special point about the end, and that end is, ladies and gentlemen, God will give us greater and more than we have actually lost in life. This is what Job is teaching us, and we see those four thematic elements. There's a great controversy. Good people suffer, and human answers are insufficient, finally leading us to the last conclusion that God will bring a greater good out of the suffering. I'm going to invite some friends up who are going to do a very special song. We make an appeal. You know, oftentimes in life, we may go through moments where we feel at the lowest pit of darkness when things around us give away. Things that we put our faith and hope in to give us stability all of a sudden are now gone. Maybe at the moments where we're feeling pressure and we're feeling ourselves beginning to break, to crack. Some of us may be living with the guilt of sin that we feel like we can't overcome and there's just darkness over our lives. Others, somebody else did the wounding. And you're carrying this. Ladies and gentlemen, God is wanting us to understand something in the book of Job. God is concerned and he cares about our lives. And he wants to provide healing for those wounds that are there, whether it's spiritual, people, family, whatever wounds they are that each one of us carry. God wants to heal those wounds. What may be those wounds in your life? What may be the feelings of failure, despair in your life? The book of Job teaches us that we should not give up. That we should trust that God will bring a greater good out of the good we originally had. And he would do a very special thing for us if we will trust in him like Job says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And we will persevere with God. We will see that God has been waiting so long to do a special kind of thing for us. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're in that circumstance, you feel like you're in that condition, struggling, feeling like you're at your end, God is calling you again to trust in him, to keep moving forward, to stay on that path, and to receive all that he has in store for you. But this requires, ladies and gentlemen, for you to keep your eyes on him, the author and finisher of our faith. I want to do a special appeal while we're praying. If you could bow your heads. Father in heaven, we just thank you, God, that, that you are somebody who sympathizes with us in our weakness. And you know human frailty, God. Thank you, Lord, 
that you love us and you care for us in spite of all of that. Lord, I just pray for this group of people and all those that are hearing this, Father, that they may receive right now an affirmation from heaven, your special peace, God, that would be upon them to let them know that you love them, that all of heaven loves them, and God, that you will bless them. Thank you, Father, for that promise that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. God, strengthen us again to keep going on, to keep moving forward, and to see, as David said, the goodness of God in the land of living. And bring us back again tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, for those who are going to stay behind, um, we just ask that during the question time, remain cordial. We're going to have someone walk around, maybe BJ or Vasa. They'll get your question and they'll move on to somebody else, okay? So we'll just take a couple minutes just to get ourselves adjusted, and then we'll begin this question and answer time. So let's just take about a minute or two. Very good. By the way, I've also invited my friend Chad Cruiser. We've done some ministry together. We've known ourselves for some time. So he's going to come up here and he's going to help me with this question answer time. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much. And God, right now we want to pray you'd bless this time, that it would be productive. And God, we'd walk away refreshed. Thank you, Lord, that you are God who says, come, let us reason together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor? Yeah. Okay. I get that evil, bad things happen in this world because of Satan. You explained that in the story. But my question is in the Garden of Eden, when everything first started, it was perfect, there was no sin. Somehow, Lucifer got in his head to be selfish and to, like, he wanted to uphold the world. And the, that's sort of like the origin of sin. Where did, I guess, where did. Where would that come from if the place is like a perfect place of no sin? And also, if when God comes back, we go back to like a perfect area, a perfect sinless atmosphere, how do we know that won't happen again? The first part of the question is a couple questions basically asked. Um, so how did this come about with Lucifer, if I understand? How did he come about with these evil thoughts, these evil desires. Well, number one, uh, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, Isaiah, the prophet, he asked a question, which is basically the same question you just asked. He said, it says in the King James Version, he says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? He asked the question, the exact question that you're asking, how did this happen? How did a perfect God in a perfect, with a perfect universe, with perfect beings, and how did Lucifer in this environment end up sinning, right? That's the question. If, if you have that question, you are in good company because Isaiah himself had the very same question. How did this happen? That's what he asked. And so uh, basically the answer is that we don't totally know. How did this happen? If we could explain why he did it, if we could explain why Lucifer did this, in essence, we would be able to excuse why he did it, right? We could say, well, there was a reason why he did it. But the fact is, the Bible actually has a phrase, it calls it the mystery of... Iniquity. Iniquity. 
There is something mysterious about sin and, and its origins and how it came about. And so we don't have a perfect, we don't have a perfect reasoning on this is exactly why it happened. But what we do know is that Lucifer came up with these things. It tells us that he was lifted up because of his pride. He began to think of himself. He began to think less of God, more of himself. His selfishness took over, and he ended up sinning. So I'll have Anel say a little bit more about that. The second question, though, about how do we how do we know that it won't arise again? The only reason we know. Perfectly that it won't is because God tells us that. In, in the book of Nahum, chapter 1, it simply, simply tells us that affliction or sin will not arise the second time. Meaning, God takes to heaven everyone who actually would be happy there. Did you know that? If you would be happy in heaven, you will be there. Every single person who would be happy in heaven will be there. And if you actually Love God with all your heart. You will be in heaven. Truly with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you will be in heaven. And the reality is, is all those who will be in heaven for eternity are those who God knows have that in their heart. That their best interest is actually looking out for others first and self second. And if you look out for others first, you would never rise up and do what Lucifer did because he was seeking self first. So I'll let Anel share a little more. Yeah. That's a very good question. I wrestled with that as well. You know, the one thing to pay attention to is this, is that I, um, I, I one day was pondering this question and I opened up a, a book. It's called Patriarchs and Prophets. The very first chapter, do you know what it's called? Why was sin permitted? The answer is found in the very first line. God is love. Now, at first, that may seem like kind of a contradiction. It's like, wait a minute. How is a sinful world compatible with the God of love? But love itself requires freedom for it to exist. And what God has bestowed upon Adam and Eve was complete freedom. One of the reasons why the, garden, uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil was there is because freedom unaware to God or choice unaware to God is not choice. He had to present to them that there was always another option available. It was not his desire. This was a perfect world. But what we have in the book of Genesis, we actually find out about that antagonist who entered into the garden and led Eve down a series of temptation. If you want to rewind past that point, you deal with the fall of Lucifer. And I appreciate what uh, Chad said right here. But the one thing we need to understand about sin, and she touched on it, is this. When you read Ezekiel 28, the tension is found in a perfect being and how he becomes imperfect. It's actually a chiastic structure and it leads you to this one verse there. From the top to the bottom, it leads you to this one verse that says this, and you were perfect in all your ways till iniquity was found in you. And that is actually the central part of that chiastic structure. Hebrew writers were leading people to understand there is a tension here about the fall of Lucifer, how he, became, how he was perfect and how he fell into sin. And what we understand and all that we can understand is he made a choice. He made a choice to rebel. He went against... Everything in his nature went against everything of his position, and he made a choice to rebel and violate that sacred na nature. And what is so interesting is he began to go down this path of rebellion. And even Isaiah says, how is it that you have fallen? The Bible calls it the mystery of iniquity. 
But there's another mystery in Scripture too. Do you know what else it is? The mystery of godliness. You want to know the difference between both those two and how they're similar? The mystery of iniquity is how a creature attempted to become God. The mystery of godliness is how God became a creature. What is also very interesting about those two concepts is this. Both of them are mysterious and do not seem to have some kind of warrant behind it. Satan made a choice to rebel. God makes a choice to love us in spite of us. Two mysteries that we will study out for all of eternity. One that led to death and one that leads to eternal life. And all I can say to this is, even Jesus said this when he was being nailed to the cross. He said, Father, forgive them for they what? Do not, they do not what? Know what they do. One of the reasons why humanity has the chance of redemption is because we did not live in the higher state that those angels possessed. We lived in a state of not having all the truth and knowledge that these angels did, which makes them even more accountable. And so this is why God gives humanity the opportunity to be redeemed. But when we read the book of Genesis, right from the very beginning, we can see God was a, a perfect God who made a perfect world with the perfect people who had perfect communion, and Satan interrupted that and began to lead Eve down a decision-making path that would eventually lead her husband as well and cascade or uh, bring the entire human race with it as well. So the best thing I can recommend to you is take a good look at that chapter found in that book, Patriarchs and Prophets, if you had a chance. Read Ezekiel 28, and there you'll begin to understand some of the things that led to humanity's downfall. How it took place is we know ultimately God gave to humanity the facts or the acts of freedom. He produced the facts of it. God did not make sin Actual, he made it possible, as Norman Geisler said, but humanity made it actual. We took advantage, we made that choice, and because of it is why we're in the state that we are in. So, I think that one question probably suffices all the other questions. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one thing that you I think the, uh, the lesson found in the book of Job is extremely remarkable because it teaches that as Job was dealing with his cascading series of events that were tragic at one right after the other, he maintains his connection with God. Even his life is just like curse God and be free of him, but he refused to do that. The best thing I can say for you is during those times is just to hang on and every day going to God's word and stick it out with him you'll find out that he will lead you through those tough times. When my dad passed away, it was the very first funeral I ever went to. You ever want to see people without hope? Go to a Hindu funeral. There is no concept of a personal resurrection. No concept. It's just becoming, going to nirvana, becoming one with the universe. If you want to see pain and heartache and hopelessness, go to a Hindu funeral. 
When I went to that first funeral, which was my own father's, I had just become a Christian. I couldn't understand what was going on. I was in the middle of choosing majors in college. There was so much difficulty going on, so much problems. But as I was going through that experience, the one anchor I had in my life was God and His Word. And I just would every day go to God with my heartache and pain, just open up His Word, and I would constantly find this comfort and this healing that began to take place over a period of time. But the one thing I said, I'm going to stick it out. I don't understand what's going on. Everything's falling apart. I don't even know what's happening. But I'm going to go through God, to God in His Word. And you know, it's very interesting. Even when Jesus is walking to the Peter and to the sea, they're in the middle of a storm, and all they see is clouds and darkness. And even when Jesus speaks, they interpret Him as a what? They said, this is a demon or ghost. But then when He speaks His Word, they recognized this was Jesus, and they understood it through His comforting tones. This is the Word of God. That's Jesus, even though we can't see Him in this time of suffering and pain. And they held on to that, and Peter stepped out in faith. It doesn't say the storm abated when Peter was walking on water. Stood out on that water, and he continued walking to Jesus in the middle of the storm. Jesus did not stop that storm from taking place, but what he was teaching Peter was, you keep your eyes on me, you will make it. That's the best thing I can say to you. Being a college student, I totally know the frustrations, the pressures, the sense of inadequacy, the feelings of confusion, relationship issues, the want, the longings of the heart, I totally understand that. But I have found more and more Jesus wants to be part of every area of my life. Just have to let him. Uh, we're told that uh, Jesus could through the portals of the tomb. I often wonder, what are some of the things more specific that he couldn't see? Uh, you know, we know some things he could see. Uh, he, he knew that he would rise again, at least he said. But what are some specifics that he couldn't see? You know, one of the issues of Jesus suffering and making his way to the cross is if you contrast Jesus' life with the life of many martyrs in the century, one of the things that you see is that martyrs, many of them, like John Booth, for example, he, while he was going to his state to be burned to death, was singing, Jesus, our son of David, have mercy on him. He was singing again. Others who have gone to their death they say, you know, and you may have heard, you know, talking about people that they look like they were maybe a king going to a processional as they were going to their death to be a martyr for Jesus. As if they almost could you know, they, they had no fear of going forward. And then you contrast that with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Crying out, what, is, what, what was this prayer? If it is possible... Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. Why did Jesus seem so fearful going to his death? 
when his followers, many of them, were so fearless going to their death? Did Jesus not have as much faith as his followers? That's not the issue at all. What did Jesus' followers believe would be the very next thing that would happen after they died? They believed that they would see Jesus after they died. You know, if they had a false conception of, of state of the dead, they thought it was immediately. Others believed that the next thing they would see was that in the resurrection they would come up and see Jesus, which is what the Bible teaches. So they had no fear because they knew this death was only temporal. But while Jesus was going to his death, the reason he couldn't see through the portals of the tomb is because his followers were experiencing what we call the first death. His followers were experiencing the first death, and the first death is a death from which there can be a resurrection unto life. But Jesus, on the other hand, was actually not suffering the first death. He was suffering what the Bible refers to as the second death. And if you were to go through the second death, now what is the second death? At the end of the millennium, uh, at the end of the thousand years of Revelation chapter 20, it says fire comes down from heaven. Fire comes down from God out of heaven and devours the wicked. They are destroyed for eternity. And as the flames come down upon them and they sense that they are lost because of their sins, they recognize there is no hope of resurrection. What a terrible experience to have. Not so much just because of the fire, but more so because of the recognition of the fact that I could have been saved. But I put money in front of God. I put a relationship in front of God. I put whatever some sin. When Jesus was upon the cross, my sins, your sins, every human being's sins were upon him. So what Jesus was dying for was not for the first death. He was dying, in a sense, for that too, but he was ultimately dying for the second death. And so as he was going, he was receiving all, all of our sins. It, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for he, God, hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What it says is that God the Father made Jesus sin. So Jesus was experiencing what the sinners have to experience at the end of the millennium. And in that experience, he could not see through the portals of the tomb. Because if he went to the cross just singing joyfully, oh, praise the Lord, and then died not right. He must not have died the second death. But Jesus actually was going with the utter hopelessness of the weight of your sin and mine, and he was experiencing what you should experience in the end of time. He couldn't see through the portals of the tomb. But we have hope in eternal life because Jesus became sin for us who knew no sin. That none of us have to be lost. Jesus died the second death in our place. Just a, a quick thought to that is, this is something that's been revolutionary to me. You know, people always told me when I was a Hindu, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, Jesus died for you, and I never understood it. And to me, it was same as saying as Chad died for me, Chad died for me, Chad died for me, no offense. But here's the thing. I had no concept of what the, the problem really was. What was the big deal? 
someone dies for you, it makes absolutely no sense to you unless we understand what the issue is. And the issue is, like Chad stated so well, is that at the end of time, there are people who are not going to be in heaven and they need to be faced with the reality of why they're not going to be in heaven. God wants to make it very clear. Ultimately, you see in judgment, God gives judgment. Then he gives to the saints judgment. And the saints themselves ultimately give judgment to the wicked. The wicked themselves will be in a kind of judgment of themselves. The Bible says the books were open. They will see why and they will recognize why they cannot be in heaven. So they go through a sense of no resurrection, no hope. We're not getting out of this one alive. In order for Jesus to be your Savior, your Messiah, he would have to go through that same experience. Throughout his whole ministry, he said, three days, I'm going to die, resurrect. Three days, die, resurrect. He kept saying that over and over again until he actually went through the second death process. Immediately in that time of suffering, his faith was zoned in. He can no longer see with a, a far-sighted faith anymore. He could not see into the future. To him, all he was able to see at that very moment was this was it. He reached a condition where he was willing and knowingly ready to die, never to be resurrected. He was willing to pay the price so that all of us might be in heaven, so that one might be in heaven. He was willing to give up his eternal existence. And he reached that point. And this is what makes the second death so remarkable and to me so life-changing and empowering when you realize my God was willing to do this for me. And he went through an actual real-time experience of going through that, through that time. It's powerful. So this may take about two or three other questions. Um, here's something to understand about the judgment. During the thousand years, this is extraordinary because, you know, I met a man one day. He doesn't believe in God. This is the reason why. Him and his wife, um, him and his, his sister and her husband were teaching. Uh, they were teaching at a Sunday school. Grew up as Christians. Man came in, tied them to the bed, including their kid, and lit the whole thing on fire. Killed them all. And he says to me, I can't believe in God. There's no way a God who is so good could allow an evil so bad. But what the thousand years is all about, it's in going to be a very clear and transparent time for God, where God will show us details, factors, the intricacies, everything that he was dealing with. And I look forward to that time. And he will make himself completely open to all questions. So we will see God's character in light of that. But there will be also this other process or this aspect where we will see why the wicked are not in heaven. 
In fact, it says judgment was committed to the saints. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 1, we'll be priests and kings with him. The difference between a priest and a king, a priest rules over spiritual matters, a king rules over temporal matters. During the thousand years, it says we're priests. You know when we're kings? When God recreates the earth. It even says, as kings, we will worship him. But during that thousand years, we'll go through that phase of being priests. The Bible says in, in Deuteronomy or Leviticus that the priests, what they were required to do, whenever a controversy took place, a book was given to them, they would open up that book and they would look through the matter. And so what we will be doing, we will be looking through the matter. Even it says that... Um, Jesus says, the queen of Sheba will rise up in the judgment and say to this generation, Solomon came to talk to me and I was converted. But one wiser than Solomon came to you. In other words, what's happening is Jesus is giving us a glimpse of the judgment and he's showing that people themselves will not only vindicate God, but they will vindicate his ways as well. We ourselves will be kind of a standard in the judgment. The men of Nineveh will stand up in the judgment and they will say to this generation, they will say, we repented at the preaching of Jonah, yet one greater than Jonah was here. They will be shocked at what's happening. The Bible says the books are open. Everything will be crystal clear. And the cool thing we'll understand, and you know, this is where it gets, it gets very interesting. Um, and I'm, I'm just wondering how to articulate this. We will also be involved in the accountability process too. In other words, what should this person understand before they are destroyed? We will be involved in the accountability process, which is so amazing. Before God judges humanity, he says, no, no, no. I want to make sure humanity does the judgment. They're on the same page. They're seeing everything. And what we will do, we will confirm God's judgment. We're like, God, you were right in every step. And to me, I remember one time I was studying with this lawyer. Um, she's from Berkeley. And let me just tell you, she it was very difficult to study with this lady. And uh, she was also a philosophy student. And when I shared with her this concept about God's judgment, she said to me something I never forgot. She said, I have never seen a judgment so awesome, so wise, so perfect, where God himself will include humanity in that judgment and then he will allow the wicked to see why they cannot be in heaven and they themselves will confirm that judgment god does not even destroy anybody without their consent which tells us ultimately in everything god does he will respect the choice okay we'll make okay Go ahead. This question deals with the, about the validity of the Bible. And so my understanding is that these books are written by, you know, prophets, authors of God, inspired men. My question that I uh, that I had to uh, face today was that, well, where does the inspiration of the compilation of these books come, you know, come from? Does that make sense? Like the can yeah, canonization of all the books? Because I was talking to my brother-in-law and he said, well, you've got the books of Enoch, the books of Judas, and they weren't canonized. And so, where's, where's the inspiration? Like, where's, where's the source of, of this inspiration? You know, how was it compiled? And he was arguing that, you know, well, the church put it together. And so, therefore, his implication was there's no inspiration at all. That's right. 
Were you, um, did you listen to my sermon two days ago? When I talked about the Bible and I talked about the canon? Were you aware of that? Did you listen to that sermon? <laughs> it's okay, you're forgiven. Okay, um, <laughs> here's the thing. Um, one thing to, to recognize is this, is that the Bible says the spirit of prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, any truth that comes into the future must be subject to previously established truth. One day I was talking to a group of Mormons. They wanted to come inside my house, and they shared with me, you know, Joseph Smith. And I said to them, I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Is the spirit of the prophet subject to the spirit of the prophets? They said, yes. And I said, okay. So therefore, any newer revelation must be tested upon. And they said, older revelation. And I said to them, okay, you have the Book of Mormon, your various books, and that Joseph Smith was also involved in. They came after the scriptures, the Old Testament authority, New Testament authority was being established still. They came after that. And I said, so if there is a contradiction... How do you test a contradiction? And they said to me, very hesitantly, but this is what they said, we will test based upon previously established truth. So I asked them a very simple question. I said, okay, if I find a contradiction in the Book of Mormon with the New Testament, which should I follow? And they stated to me again, well, we would follow the scriptures. So I said, okay. I'm going to bring up a contradiction. I would like you to resolve this contradiction. <laughs> and I said, in the Mormon church early on, polygamy was widespread and seen as something that was being promoted by the particular church leadership. And the book of Timothy clearly states, an elder should be the husband of one wife. I said, can you explain to me this apparent contradiction? And he looked at me, I never forgot the moment. And then he looked at his friend. And then he said to me, I don't know. And I, then I began just to talk to him. I said, okay, anything that is established must be based or tested upon what was previously established. New Testament was based upon the Old Testament. You see Peter already calling um, Paul's writings the word of God. You see Peter also reciprocating, same as well. And what you see was that the early church, those who had definitely prophetic gifts, were recognizing scriptures well before 300 AD. The scriptures were being recognized and being shared. One of the reasons why pseudepigraphus, or pseudepigraphus, however you want to pronounce it, like the book of Enoch, the book of Adam, all these books were rejected is because even when the canon was established in AD 300 plus, they did not meet the basic criteria. The canon had very basic criteria, dating, consistency, continuity. Many of these books were really seen as strange and suspicious. I mean, there was very pagan things that were taking place there. So they were clearly rejected right off the back. Clearly rejected. I never forgot one day I was sitting with a man at a series and he was like, I want some questions about the book of Enoch. I've been reading through it and stuff like that. And then I said, okay, what about the rest of scripture? You reading the rest of scripture? And he's like, no. And then I said to him, okay, I said, do you believe the rest of scripture? He said, yes. He says, but I just have questions about the book of Enoch and the book of Adam. What about these books? I took the Bible, I patted the Bible right in front of him and I said, look, everything that is needed to save you, it's right here. There's enough in these books right here, the Bible, to save you. 
And he fully agreed with me on this concept. So I would just say there are definite reasons why these pseudopigraphs were rejected. Very clear, valid reasons why they were rejected. Very rejected. They were violating basic common sense. Gospel of Thomas, for example, you know, and the Gospel of Judas, completely suspicious. The only people that are pushing those ideas generally are individuals who are already antagonistic towards the Bible or they're skeptical and just wanting to look for some new thing. But they have no valid weight with the rest of Scripture. Uh, if you actually look into some of these books too, like Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, you'll find that when, when we never read them, we think, oh, why aren't they in there? And then you go read them and you find, I don't remember if it's Gospel of Judas or Gospel of Thomas, that women cannot be saved. And so God made, I think God turned, Jesus turned Mary Magdalene maybe into a man so she could be saved. Jesus, Judas. Judas. Yeah, the Gospel of Judas. Gospel of Judas. Yeah. Now, do you see why that one might not fit with the rest of the Bible? <laughs> it's kind of clear. And I'm not saying that to put you down. I'm saying that it, the reality is when we stand back from the Gospel of Judas, Gospel of Thomas, and to us it just sounds like the Gospel of John or Luke or Mark and so forth, right? And so it sounds like, well, it's just more information. But you go and you read it and you realize there's something obviously not right. For instance, in the, uh, in the extra chapters of the book of Daniel that you have inside of the Apocrypha, Apocrypha you find that Daniel, there's a, there's, a bell, there's a dragon by the name of Bel. And Daniel comes to this dragon, and if I remember correctly, he talks. Does he talk? Mm -hmm. And Daniel feeds him tar balls, I think mixed with hair, I could be wrong about the hair part. He feeds them to Bel the dragon, and he bursts asunder. Now, once again, something doesn't quite fit well with this story and the rest of the book of Daniel, which foretold history for thousands of years. He was a vegan from the beginning. Yes, yes. Now, you get the point. Sometimes these things sound very good until you actually look into them, and then you realize, that's why it's not in there. That's why we don't believe it, because it doesn't make any logical sense. Right. And so, there were good reasons why the original books were accepted, and there were incredibly good reasons why these other books were that's right. Very good question. Right, we have a question right there. Uh, in Job chapter 1, Satan meets with, with God and other angels or sons of God. How is it that Satan had access to, to this meeting? Was he not, or does he continue to have access? Is this meeting still open? Okay, um, here's a few things to understand about this whole concept. When you read Revelation chapter 12 and it's talking to him about him being cast out, it talks about him being cast out and then it talks about him being cast to the earth. Those are actually two different phrases and it's talking, describing about Lucifer. Here's the thing is right after he was cast out of heaven, he still apparently had some kind of access wherever God would show up or where there was meetings. It doesn't necessarily that say that took place in heaven, but we do know there was some kind of meeting where he still had access. All the way into the Old New Testament, Old Testament, you find him, you know, like in the book of Zechariah, he's standing before the throne of God, accusing Joshua the high priest. Jesus says something very remarkable during his ministry in John chapter 12. He said, when I am lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast out. Let me ask you a question. Where was Jesus when he said that? Was he in heaven? No. no, he was on earth, right? But he said something remarkable. He said, when I am lifted up, he was describing the cross, the prince of this world will be cast out. 
What he was referring to is when Jesus would be lifted up on the cross, there would be a clear contrast between who God was and who Satan was. Clear, so clear to the universe that what God did is he utterly revealed the character of God in contrast to the character of Lucifer, and it was the universe that kicked Lucifer out. In other words, where Satan had an audience, he had a kind of property. All the way up to the time of the cross, he still had a kind of audience. Do you remember in the book of Job? He said these things in front of who? All of them. And the reason why is because they still had some questions about the deception of Lucifer, or who, what Lucifer was saying. And at the cross, the character of God, the government of God, and the character of Lucifer and Lucifer's government was clearly seen, and the universe itself did the expelling. The Bible even says in Revelation 12, it says, neither was there a place found for him in heaven any longer. Heaven itself kicked Lucifer out of heaven. Up to this point, God would not do the removing because a complete removing is because he understood that if he was to remove the antagonist completely out of the picture, what would happen is the questions that these other angels had would not be resolved. And so God had to deal constantly, whether it was at the gates of heaven or some other planet, we don't know, constantly with the harassment of the devil. But God was not afraid. And do you know who vindicated God? In all these steps, you read about people like Moses, people like Abraham, people like Job. Job has no idea he was involved in this kind of vindication. And when he gets to heaven, he is going to be blown away by all the other surprises he has. That God used him as a powerful witness in the court case to exonerate God's character and the principles of God's kingdom and to see that the evil one was also expelled. Let me add one footnote to that, and this is real quickly. That phrase, neither was there a place found for him any longer, shows that there was no more question in heaven at that moment about the principle or character of Lucifer. When the wicked are destroyed, at the end of Revelation chapter 20, and the books were open, it says, neither was there a place found on earth for them any longer. In other words... They reach a similar state where there is this overall consensus. And this is God. This is wonderful how God runs his government. He runs it with consensus. And I'm so blown away because he is not afraid of questions. So. We're going to take one more question. So, <coughs> question and ask time. So the, Job 1.13, what is this talking about here? And there was a day when his sons, Job's sons and his daughters, were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Well, one of the things about the Bible when it talks about wine is that you don't necessarily know what kind of wine it is, except based upon the context. And sometimes you can't even tell for sure based upon the context. Like, this just doesn't say. Now, if these were faithful people, we could guess that, for instance, the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 65, in verse 8, when it's speaking about, uh, God says, 
that there was a certain cases. What does it say? Let's find out. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 8. Yes. It says, Thus saith the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, Don't destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. So in, in Isaiah, we have this picture that God says that there's a certain kind of wine, and he said, as the new wine is found in the what? Cluster. What's a cluster? A, cl a bunch of grapes, right? So a bunch of grapes is a cluster. And if you take a bunch of grapes and you squish them, what comes out of them? We call it grape juice. The Bible calls it wine, but it specifically calls it new wine, right? So as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, don't destroy it, for a blessing is in it. Right? Now, you see in the Old Testament, you have both a good kind of wine that says, don't destroy it, because it's good for you. It's a blessing, there's a blessing, actually. You have another kind the Bible talks about, like in the book of Proverbs, that it tells us that there's a certain kind of wine that is destructive to humanity, right? That it destroys people. Uh, the, book of, the book of Proverbs tells us that one who's drinking, it drinks too much many times, and ends up feeling like they're on the top of a massive ship. And they feel like they're swaying back and forth, and this man wakes up and says he sees, he beholds strange women, and when he wakes up, he seeks it again. And the Bible says don't even look at it when, it, when, it, when it's that kind of wine, when it runs aright or when the bubbles go up in the, in the cup. It says don't even look at it. Now, there are certain kinds of wine in the Bible. We do see people drinking wine. We see Noah getting drunk in the Bible, right? We see different times where people are drinking. But then we have this perspective that you have this new wine. Jesus, in the New Testament, during the Passover, he drank wine, the Bible says. And many people say, well, Jesus drank wine. It's good for you, right? Now, wine, they say, well, wine is good for you. It's good for your heart, French clothes. But it happens to be bad for your brain, and it's bad for cancer, for breast cancer and other types of cancer. New wine, though, on the other hand, the Bible says a blessing is in it. And now that's the grape juice wouldn't be bad for those things, right? It's not bad for the grain, it's not bad. It's, the things that are good in the wine are also good in the grape juice, right? The things that are bad in the wine are not bad in the grape juice. That's the sign of it. It's just technicalities. But according to the Bible, we have this picture that Jesus was drinking wine on the Passover. One of, one of the interesting things about the Passover is that what were you not to have in your house during the time of the Passover? Leaven, or things that were fermented, right? You were not to have this in your house. So during the Passover, in, in true biblical times, the most faithful Israelites, what kind of wine should they have had in their house? They should have had the new wine. The one that has a blessing in it. And Jesus actually, interestingly enough, in the context of talking about this drinking of the wine, he holds up the cup and he says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. He said, I will not drink it henceforth until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So even in the context, you have Jesus drinking new wine and saying, I'm going, I won't drink it again. So Jesus has put off the drinking of the new wine, the grape juice, until that day that he drinks it new in the kingdom of God. We will drink it together with him in heaven. We'll drink wine in heaven. But it will be the new wine that we context, I don't, I don't know. I can't tell you for sure if, if the family was drinking alcohol at that time or not. If they were being faithful to what they hopefully would have done, hopefully they would have been drinking the new one. But I don't honestly... Do you have any more? Anything to add to that? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did a good job. Hey, another quick, another quick thing on this. Many people say, well, back then they 
couldn't actually preserve wine very long because it became inactive. If you look at that historical waste of actually boiling it down, so it became uh, what we would call like concentrate. And it could last much longer, and they could use it then later by reconcentrating it. They would actually, uh, you know, they say that, that that was something they were able to do back then also. So. Okay. Chad, you want to pray for us? Yeah, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Great God and Heavenly Father, I am so thankful that you are not afraid of our questions. Mm. Though we may not always be able to accurately explain everything, and the fact is we won't always be able to. There are questions that each of us may take with us into eternity. But I think, I'm thankful that when we come to you, you're not afraid to answer our questions. And my prayer, Father, is that none of us will give up that which we do know for the things that we don't know. Amen. Father, the atheist does not give, his, give up his belief in evolution because he doesn't understand a few aspects of nature. He still holds firm to his belief. How much more we who have evidence of your love, evidence of history, evidence from prophecy, even evidence from science, and the evidence from the scriptures that you are a God of love. And Father, my prayer once again is that we will not give up what we do know for what we do not know. Father, I pray that you would draw each and every one of us to you. And Father, I also know personally that when I first came to the faith, there are tons of answers I didn't know. And if, I, if somebody raised an objection that I didn't know the answer to, I was almost ready to give up everything. But then I would find an answer later on. And then I would hear another objection, and another, and another. And sometimes they would stack up, and I would become so fearful that I would almost fear that I would give up everything. And then I'd find one of those answers, and another one, and another You'd answer those, and then others would arise. But Father, I recognize that sometimes we ask questions, not because we really want to know the answer, but because we want to give an excuse why we don't want to believe. And my prayer, Father, is that we would only seek true answers and actually seek them out and actually seek to find answers to these questions. Because you can answer a sincere question. I pray that we'd have sincere hearts, that we would give ourselves to you actually seeking to know from you we thank you that in the end, our general questions can be answered from you one-on-one -on -one in the kingdom. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org